It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Jason Robel and Whitney Lauritsen. Jason, I'm curious, do you listen to any type of audio track when you're working as a form of like getting you into productivity or focus, relaxation? It could be music or binaural beats or like a certain frequency. Is that at all part of your routine? It depends on the kind of work I'm doing, to be honest with you. If I am doing something that requires more, say, physicality, whether that's washing the dishes or organizing files, I don't even rearranging a bookshelf, something that requires a lot of physicality, I do. And I find that something that helps me focus and something that gives me energy is useful. However, if I'm sitting down to write and I do a lot of writing between our Wellevator blog, our weekly newsletter, and dear listener, if you have not checked out our blog and you're not subscribed to our newsletter, you can access both of those on our website, which is wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. And um, yeah, I think Whitney, to me, it just really depends on the style of work. If I'm sitting down to write, though, I've experimented with focus tracks and with, I suppose, things that are 432 hertz and binaural beats. And I don't find that it's actually all that useful in terms of sitting down and doing more, I suppose, creative or cerebral type of activities where I'm sitting for long periods of time. Well, I guess we can end the episode then. (laughs) That was quick. (laughs) It's really interesting because I think people are often curious about these things like, does listening to music help you work? And I was reading an article about this that inspired me. And it reminded me of when I was in high school, one of my teachers, I think it was my math teacher, got really into that. And he had read a study or an article, perhaps, that said listening to certain types of like classical music music would help you work. And so he would play classical music when we would take tests. And it was actually really sweet of him. Oh, my gosh. His last name started with a C. What was it? Mr. It'll come to me later. I feel like I should give him a shout out because he was like one of those sweet teachers that I really connected with. And as a little side note, like a good teacher has such a huge impact on your life. And he was one of those teachers that I always felt so encouraged by. And it really actually shaped my confidence when it came to math. Because you know what it was, actually? I'm just realizing this as I'm saying it. He gave me a lot of words of affirmation, which is my love language. And it never really occurred to me that that's why it helped so much. Whereas some teachers may have been wonderful, but just didn't give me words of affirmation in that same way. It's fascinating to think about the subject of the teachers that have kind of impacted our life. And I haven't really reflected on my favorite teachers over the course of my life, but I think that if there's a thread through, it's that there was a warmth and a care and a vested interest in actually helping you grow and expand as a being. And it was rare. I mean, I think back, even back to elementary school, it's interesting as we're discussing this, I'm kind of flashing back on the teachers over the course of my school career. And yeah, there was a warmth and a care and a focus. And I always felt like they genuinely wanted me to do better and contrast that with other teachers that I had and me being a rebellious person. In previous episodes, we've talked a lot about the four tendencies and mine is absolutely rebellious. And 
whenever I didn't feel like the teacher gave a shit and you could feel that they were just kind of going through the motions or perhaps they were combative or aggressive or heavy handed, oh, I caused some trouble because I don't respond well to that energy. And whenever I sort of say, take it as an example in gym class, for some reason, I don't know why there just seemed to be this prototypical old school masculine dominating energy. And I don't take well that energy. I oppose that energy. I rebel against it. And there were a lot of situations that I would butt heads with those teachers that I could feel like they were combative and oppressive and kind of heavy handed. So to just piggyback on what you're saying, Whitney, I always had a special place in my heart for the teachers from elementary school all the way up through my college phase that have such deep gratitude for that level of care and attention they gave me. Yeah, it really does make a huge difference. And I feel like this is actually such an important thing to talk about on the show, but maybe encouraging the listener to reflect on their experiences, as well as future experiences, whether you're going to school, maybe you're going to go to college or go back to school to further your education, or maybe you're sending a child to school. I think there's a lot of times since I'm not in either of those positions that I don't reflect on this enough. But even if I'm not directly affected by teachers at a certain stage in my life, I feel like it's so important to address it and how we're educated because there's this cliche thing like teachers don't get enough gratitude or appreciation or they don't get paid as well. And it's sometimes a thankless job. It's really tough. And I, when I think back onto like this teacher, for example, and how he took that time to play that music for us when we were taking tests because he wanted us to succeed. And he took the time to give me words of affirmation and acknowledge me and my strengths and really encourage me with something like math, which could have easily been something that I just did because I had to do it. He actually made math very enjoyable for me. And that's huge. Whereas the opposite has been true too, where I had some teachers that maybe I felt were a little too hard on me or didn't care. (laughs) Actually, I looked back through some school records from my youth and I had this one teacher in like fifth or sixth grade that was like out to get me. (laughs) I wish I had those papers. They're actually like on the other side of the room, but it would take me a minute to go through them. But even in those notes, like she would always give me a bad grade. She would always write like really critical comments on my report cards. And my mom would still to this day brings her up every now and then and be like, why did that teacher not like you? You Like she was so tough. And actually, that was a really tough time being in, I think it was sixth grade. So that would have made me like 12 years old or something or 11. I mean, that's so young. And to have like a figure that you look up to and that you have to see every day and feel like they don't like you or they don't believe in you, that's really tough. Did you have any teachers like that, Jason? Boy, the one that comes to mind was, and I'm sure there's more if I really dig into this. I haven't thought about this in a long time. The one that comes immediately to mind, and in a previous episode... (laughs) (laughs) When I was sharing my fart story, I joked about my homeroom teacher, Mr. Shaparian, but he was only my homeroom teacher. So the one that comes to mind was he was one of the athletic coaches, but he also taught math. So he was in the athletic department, but he was also a math teacher. And I'm blanking on his name right now. 
but I remember one of the things that he would do is if someone was nodding off in his math class, and he was also like kind of pretty monotone and boring. He didn't necessarily make math exciting. And I think it was either in geometry or trigonometry class. If you were nodding off or you were not paying attention at the front of the room and his accuracy was astounding, you would be in the back of class and all the way at the front, he would take a piece of chalk and launch it at your head. He would literally hit kids in the head with pieces of chalk if they were not paying attention or nodding off. That was the one thing. The other thing I recall too was that as my rebellious side and streak would do, I would try to figure out alternative ways sometimes to come to the same answer in a math equation, geometry, trigonometry. And I remember him having some sort of response that was like, oh, well, that's not the way I showed you. That's not the way you do it. And my response was, I got to the correct answer, didn't I? He's like, yeah, but that's not the way. And I'm like, it's the right fucking answer. And those were the moments where I was like, and I've always had this whenever anybody, society, teachers, whatever, are like, this is the way it's done. And yet I might figure out an alternative or different or subversive way to get to the same destination. They're like, that's not how you do it. I have a major issue with that to this day. Like I rage against that when people are like, no, this is the only way. I'm like, nah, I got to the same answer and destination. So it's clearly not the only way. Yeah, that is what's challenging about education is that we're in those developmental stages of our life where we're testing our boundaries and we're figuring out who we are. We're developing our identities. We're hormonal. Like there's so much going on for us as kids. And then we're in this environment where these adults are telling us what to do and how to do it. And sometimes that's based on their personality or at least a percentage of it will be. And then sometimes it's based on the school system. And I think for me, since I'm a questioner, going back to the four tendencies, like it, when somebody tells me why I need to do something and it resonates with me, I'll do it. But a lot of teachers won't take that time to explain it to you. They'll be like, this is just the way you have to do it. And that just makes me feel rebellious like you, Jason. But I don't understand it that way or I don't want to do it that way would be kind of your reaction. And so... I think it's especially hard when you're at a certain age and you're especially sensitive to being rebellious unless you have a different tendency, right? Like if you're an obliger or an upholder, the other two types of tendencies, like maybe school's really easy. And I think those people, I wouldn't be surprised if they're the ones that get the straight A's because they just do what they're told and they follow the rules. And if you follow the rules, you'll get the great grades. And for me, I really struggled that because I would find myself in resistance to anything that I didn't fully understand. And that became really frustrating. But for certain teachers, Gosh, like his name is right on Cronin. That's what it was. Mr. Cronin. I hope he's still alive. I have to look him up. I imagine that he would be. But he just had the sweetest spirit and helped me understand math, right? And I needed somebody like that. And actually, I don't know if I mentioned this before on the show, but my school superlative was teacher's pet. I feel like maybe I did mention this in like one of our intro episodes or something. But the reason I believe that I was a teacher's pet in high school as well as college, I was always the person that would sit in the front row in college because we didn't have a science seating or anything and we could change it up all the time. I always sat in the front because I wanted to have a connection with my teacher. I realized that was an advantage for me. If I could connect with that teacher, listen to them, focus, I would have a better chance at succeeding in the class and understanding the information. But I would usually 
in high school and college, try to make personal connections with the teachers because then I found that they would go out of their way to help me. And so a lot of people thought I was sucking up to them, but that relationship made a huge difference. Not all teachers. And I also wonder, like, did I develop that after that really tough relationship I had with that teacher when I was in sixth grade? Like, I think it did actually scar me in some ways that I didn't fully examine because it did feel like not quite bullying, but yeah, she had it out for me. And I wonder, I don't know if she's still alive. I could probably try to look her up too. Like, I don't even know if she'd remember me, but I wish that I could somehow find out like why she treated me that way. Was she like frustrated with me? Was I the scapegoat? Was she rooting for me and like believed in me so much that she was kind of mean because she saw potential in me? Does that make sense? Yeah. My curiosity, though, Whitney, is did you compare notes on this particular treatment with your classmates and be like, hey, is she like being really mean to you? Do you get these kind of notes on your report card? Because obviously we didn't have the necessarily the framework or language for this when we were that young, but not taking things personally. Or did you consult with your classmates and be like, wow, she really has it out for me? Like, How did you form that opinion of how she was treating you? Well, part of that is my mom, who distinctly remembers that probably because she had to go to like the parent teacher meetings that they had. Part of it's my memory. And also, like I said, I have those report cards like right now. And I read through out of curiosity a few months ago, every single one of my report cards. And she is the only teacher aside. Actually, my gym teacher was the other person. I had the same gym teacher for most of my education up until college because I grew up in a small town. And I think she was my gym teacher when I was like a little kid all the way up. No, wait, she wasn't a gym teacher in high school. Never mind. Sorry. There's two schools in my hometown. There was like the elementary school, which was kindergarten through sixth grade. And then across the street was the high school. And we had different gym teachers there. It took me a moment to remember that. But still from kindergarten to sixth grade, I think I had the same gym teacher and she would write like she'd get so annoyed with me and I have no memory of that. I think that she kind of was like that in general. But my question is that it's hard to say because when you're a kid, I think that you just think things are the way that they are for everybody. Like you don't have perspective unless you see you're really hyper aware and paying attention to how other people are treated. Does that make sense? Like I think that I just figured if I was being treated a certain way, then like everybody was. And then in terms of that sixth grade teacher, if you look through my notes, it did feel personal. And I don't remember talking to other students about it. I could ask my friend, but she probably wouldn't remember either from lack of a great memory or maybe she wasn't as affected by it. You know what I'm saying? So like, it's kind of tough to ask now, Jason, which is a long answer to your question. But it is interesting because it seemed to be enough evidence to feel like there was something about the way that she acted with me. But maybe you're right. Maybe it wasn't ever about me. Maybe it wasn't personal. And I just took it personally because I didn't know how else to take it. Yeah. And that's what I mean. It's almost like reflecting on some of the forgiveness work. We have an upcoming episode that is really phenomenal with a TRE therapist and yoga teacher who teaches trauma and anxiety release, Krista Gowan, and just a fantastic, fantastic conversation with her. But the forgiveness work we talk about in that upcoming episode is, it reminds me of this, Whitney, almost like 
we can choose to reframe reality in different ways, right? And in this sense, the reason I asked what I did is because it could be that this teacher was just a hard ass in general, right? And that when we're that young, our reality is in some ways that everything's about us, right? It's my fault. This happened. This is why this didn't work out or did work out. And it's not necessarily selfish or egoic. I mean, it is egoic in a way. I think as kids, it's natural to think, depending on the stage of development, that everything revolves around us. I mean, that's we don't have a complete worldview. And that's why I asked what I asked in the sense of, you know, did you ask any other classmates like, hey, you know, she being a bitch to you, she like really hard on you. But when we're that age, it it kind of feels like, again, you talk about hormones and development and all the growth we're going through emotionally, physically, chemically, hormonally, that a lot of shit does feel like it's us. I think about the bullies. We talked about this on one of our cultural appropriation episodes and a lot of the bullying and the violence that I went through in my junior high and high school years. And if I look back now, the forgiveness that I have for the bullies that picked on me and were violent toward me, that's all they knew. They came from violent backgrounds. They felt disenfranchised. They felt disempowered. And so what are they going to do to get their power back and their sense of self? And also, you know, teenage boys are full of hormones and testosterone. And what did Joe Rogan say about it one time? He said the directive for most teenage boys is either fuck or kill. Not to be blunt about that, but what I'm saying is I can look back on those phases and have a level of forgiveness and understanding and not take it personally. Right. Sometimes when we're young and impressionable, those things do form some type of trauma within us, even if it's small. Again, coming back to that teacher, like what if my coping mechanism was, wow, I never want to have another teacher treat me like that again. I better learn how to protect myself. And so maybe if I become friends with all my teachers, they'll like me and they won't treat me like that and they won't give me bad grades. That actually did work to my benefit with one teacher who taught French. And I really struggled with French, but I love the language. I've talked about this in another episode, I think, but I have such a deep draw to the French language. And I studied it off and on throughout high school, even before that, like middle school or elementary, maybe even I started like learning a little bit of French here and there. And And the French teachers were all very tough, save for one. There was one who was like this odd guy, odd in the sense like there was something probably not quite right with him because he had to take a leave of absence like during our school year. And we had like substitute teachers and like it was kind of weird. But like as kids, we're like, this is great. Like we can slack off. I remember we didn't have to work as hard because the structure was completely thrown off by this teacher. But looking back, like I don't know if he was like an alcoholic or something. Like I remember something was going on with him personally where he couldn't teach us. And it was either my seventh or eighth grade year of French. Like I was brand new to the language. And then we would have all these other floating teachers in and then we would have really hard teachers. And there was one French teacher that I had for a few years who kind of taught the language if you stuck with it. You were required to take either French or Spanish your first like two or three years of school, high school or middle school. And then after that, it was optional and you could take another class if you'd like. And I really wanted to keep taking French. So ongoing kind of more advanced French classes were taught by a really serious French teacher who was like passionate about it and spoke it like so fluently and traveled to French areas of the world, French speaking areas and like took us on field trips. Like she was so cool, but she was also very stern. And the only reason I was able to continue was because of that relationship I developed with her. And she never really got super soft with me. Like I never felt like we were buddies, but she cared about me enough that she was always pushing me beyond my perceived limits. And 
I actually ended up, I think my last year of taking French, I took a pass fail. So instead of being graded, because I was really concerned that since I was struggling with French so much, if I got like a C or God forbid a D in French, it would have skewed my GPA too much for applying to college. So because I was struggling with it so much, she let me take the class as a pass fail, but I I wasn't allowed to tell anybody in class that I was doing it because I wasn't really supposed to be doing that. But she made an exception for me and bent the rules so that I could continue studying French and learn from it on a personal level. But without it like impacting my GPA, which was really cool. And that all came out of like me getting to know her on a personal level where I could express myself to her. If I hadn't, if I just kept it like I'm just going to go into class and leave and never talk to her and get to know her, I don't know if we ever would have gotten to that place. And I think that that just shows how much of a difference it makes when you have a deeper connection with somebody than when you just try to keep things on the surface. And I've always kind of maybe since those formative years found that to be beneficial. And also I'm surprised at how many people don't do that, you know, like whether it's business dealings or any sort of socializing, a lot of people do seem to have a preference for keeping things on the surface. And I wonder if it's like a way that we guard our hearts. Yeah, I think that's accurate. I think that people have been wounded, cheated on, misled, swindled, lied to. And what do we do? I mean, if we don't process those things and move through the emotions and do the trauma release and do the work on ourselves, then the proverbial armor starts to build up. And for me, I think that's been an ongoing process of just learning to trust in life again, you know, not taking interactions with specific people and then extrapolating that onto another group. I think this is a a dangerous part of, to just be tangential for a minute, you know, racism, sexism, a lot of the isms is we might have an impression or an experience with a specific type of person, be it their race, their color, their gender, their religion. And then the dangerous thing is we extrapolate that experience to all people that look or act or worship or feel are similar to that thing. You know, that it's a very dangerous, dangerous thing to do. And I also think that we're talking about our impressions as kids, you know, with teachers or bullies or whatever the case may be. And certainly I've had to undo a lot of that for myself. I talked about, again, that in the cultural appropriation episode, we'll link to all the resources we're mentioning and all the previous episodes in the show notes at wellevator.com. Again, it's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. And you have an experience, Whitney, with, again, a teacher, a colleague, a student, whatever it is. And then the dangerous thing is like, oh, well, they're all that way. Fuck them. It's a dangerous way to live. And I think ultimately, what is that coming out of? As you said, it's coming out of protection. It's coming out of fear. I don't want to be hurt again. I don't want to be wounded. I had this, quote, bad experience with this type of person, and I don't ever want that to happen again. But that breeds contempt. It breeds hatred. It breeds anger. It breeds rage. It breeds judgment. It it takes a lot of work not to allow ourselves to fall into that pattern of thinking and behaving in the world. For sure. And it's interesting that we kind of branched off into this because I wanted to talk more about the impact that music has on our brains. And I think maybe we might naturally start coming back to the school experiences. When I brought up how that teacher, Mr. I hope I'm saying the right one. Now I'm like, what if I'm confusing him with another teacher? I have to look him up, but I'm pretty sure his name is Mr. Cronin. And I wonder if he was using this study that came out in 1993 that was called the Mozart effect. And it was just one study that suggested that listening to Mozart would improve performance. And 
it had a huge ripple effect on parents. I don't know if you remember this, Jason, but I do, especially because I was babysitting a lot. Like there was this whole thing about like baby Mozart and parents getting their kids to listen to Mozart in the 90s and in early 2000s. Do you remember that at all? Mm. I mean, the timing of it, no, but yes, I do remember this being spoken about kind of culturally. Yeah. Well, it's really fascinating because it actually was found to be mostly bogus, but it is interesting timing wise. Like maybe, I don't know if this was the study that led him to believe that, like, I'm not sure. And again, like things were so different in the 90s and early 2000s, but a paper came out in 1999 that said that the improvement in cognitive tasks actually came from the improved mood that came from listening to Mozart, for example, or Ahmed, like any of these other similar types of music, right? And so I find that super fascinating too, and actually just as beneficial because certainly like when I was taking a test or working on something hard, it does make a difference if you're in a good mood. And even that the same thing goes today. It's like, I generally just want to feel my best when I'm working so that I don't mind working. If I don't feel good, the last thing I want to do is work. And so it does play a role in productivity. And so there's been a lot of different studies that have come out over the years. I think like the concentration element of it is still kind of trying to be determined. And I think it's just like anything else that we see out there that whether it's health claims, food that might do whatever for you, like a lot of them can be disproven. But if it does just help with your mood, then isn't that what really matters anyways? Like maybe it doesn't actually affect your brain as deeply like you were talking about the hertz what was it 400 something hertz jason yeah the 432 hertz yeah how that has a different effect i heard recently and this could also be a poor source but i think i might have seen recently somebody saying that that was not the right hertz to listen to like 500 something was better and there was like maybe some studies being done about all of that. So that also could be bogus too. And if you think about it, I don't know if it's like negatively affecting us, but maybe we're being sold sometimes literally things that are promising better concentration and focus, but really not making much of a difference except impacting our moods. I feel like this is probably a good time to bring this up because we've talked about conspiracy theories in the past. And I want to link to an article in the show notes about why the standard of 440 hertz, which is A440, has become and why it became the standard of musical federations and the history behind it. And it's absolutely fascinating, Whitney. So I'm not going to go way, way, way deep down this rabbit hole because this article does a great job. It's on Global News. It's a Canadian website. But on a 12-tone musical scale, right, if we go back and we look at 1885, there was a music commission of the Italian government that declared that all tuning forks and all instruments and orchestras had to be tuned to A440, which is 440 hertz on the A scale. Now, that's different because the standard tune of that time was in some countries 435 hertz, and in France, it was 432 hertz. In 1917, there was an American Federation of Musicians, and they said, yay, we're going to go with the Italians. So they pushed for 440 hertz in the 1940s. Now, the interesting thing about this is musical theorists and people who study the vibration of sound talk about how A440 is not a natural vibration, that a more natural frequency for middle A is either 438 hertz or other theorists say it's 432 hertz, known as Verdi's A because it has a pure tone of math that is fundamental 
fundamental to nature and that 432 hertz is actually mathematically consistent with the patterns of the universe and vibrates with the golden ratio. They point to how this pitch in nature can be connected to how nautilus shells form, work of ancient mystics, and also super fascinating, the construction of the Great Pyramid in Egypt. So there's been some interesting studies showing that 432 hertz resonates with 8 hertz, which is also known as the Schumann resonance, which is the electromagnetic beat of the earth that in studies, the effect on the human body is that people have reported that 432 hertz feels better in their body. It goes way, way deeper, though, into the Rockefeller Foundation and some sinister shit that John D. Rockefeller did in terms of using 440 hertz to have a war on human consciousness and musical control. And I won't even go into that because there's a whole nother aspect of that. But a lot of musical theorists and people who study vibratory patterns on the human body say that 432 or 438 hertz is more natural for the human body to receive those frequencies. I mean, this is really fascinating, right? And I I guess it just comes down to reading about these things and then just noticing if it makes a difference on us. And sometimes it is really subtle. So I think as long as it's not hurting you, then you might as well experiment with it. I think that audio can have a negative effect. Obviously, if it's at the wrong volume, if it is evoking an emotion in you that doesn't feel good. There was also, remember that, what was it called? Not audio warfare, but like it was in like Cuba or something where they were hearing like crazy sounds. You remember this, Jason? It was like within the past five years. Yeah. Oh man, we are going down a crazy ass rabbit hole right now. But this is what we do here on This Might Get Uncomfortable. Okay, so there's a thing, okay, in terms of how sound frequencies and vibrations are used to affect human consciousness, okay? And there's something, I don't know if it's related to Cuba necessarily, but there is something in terms of psychotronic warfare that the government's been experimenting with. There are many, many articles. I will link to this thing. It's called the Lily Wave. And the Lily Wave is essentially a biphasic electric pulse that stimulates the neurons of your brain to resonate at a certain frequency. And in government experiments, they've shown that this Lily Wave resonates at a frequency that can control the brainwave patterns of the human brain. Now, the fascinating thing is that sugar crystals can actually receive this lily wave at a deeper level in the human body. And in specific military applications, it has been known to drive people into madness. There's references to this. There was actually a doctor named John Lilly, who in 1959, he was working for the NIH, which is the National Institutes of Health. And he looked that things in our food and also TV signals could deliver this lily wave, which again, changes the molecular response in the human brain. So we can go, this is in terms of sound frequency, there's some pretty radical and also disturbing things that people are doing with sound frequencies and manipulating human behavior. Yeah, I just looked it up. It was a sonic attack. That's the term that I was looking for. And it was actually happening in Cuba and China between 2016 and 2018. But then there were there were people that were proving that it wasn't actually happening. So there was no evidence of an intentional sonic attack. But then there are some articles, like if you look this up, some people think like, okay, some brain scans show that it might have actually happened. Or some people believe that it was actually connected to insecticide, which also probably isn't so good for your health. But yeah, there's like an article from CNN that says that Cuba sonic attacks changed people's brains according to a study. But I haven't looked into too many studies. So like, I mean, to me, I actually trust CNN. So if it's on there, I'm like, well, then that's probably pretty legitimate. I feel like they wouldn't post 
what I perceive to be fake news, but I suppose that's up to interpretation. This article is from July 2019. So a lot of this stuff could also be disproven over time, seen as a conspiracy theory and all of that. But it's really fascinating to me. Like my point being like, is this sonic transmission affecting our brains? And like, I think we do need to be mindful of what we listen to. And also I recall vaguely, Jason, I wonder if you remembered any of this, but like growing up, there was so much concern about like what music you listen to. And like, I think that you would get a little triggered by this, but I think parents tend to be concerned, like what are their kids hearing or is the music making them more angry? I'm fascinated by that. And I also continuously fascinated by current music. There's a song out right now called WAP, W-A-P. Do you know about that song, Jason, by Cardi B? Oh, very much so. And it's one of those songs where it's like, if I were a parent, I think I'd be a little horrified. But then I was thinking about it. First, I was thinking about this last night because if I had a kid right now and they were like, mom, what is a whap? Like, would I lie to them and like make up some like phrase for that? Or should I just tell them the truth of what that song's about and like let them know the reality of it? Like, that's what's always interesting about music. Remember, we had that episode a little while ago, Jason, where we were talking about songs that made us uncomfortable. And a lot of like sexual songs made me very uncomfortable when I was a preteen because I was like developing and hormonal and like uncomfortable in my body. And like I wasn't ready at that point to really talk about sex. And I was curious about sex, but like it also made me very uncomfortable. And so that type of music I imagined can be very confronting to parents and kids. But then I also feel like a lot of people really enjoy that music and appreciate it. And it kind of gives like that freedom of speech. So I'm curious about your perspectives on that too. I think that at some point, kids are going to probably seek out that which has been restricted from them, unless they're an obliger. But a lot of kids I know, and myself included, things were restricted. I was told not to watch that or not to view it. I'd find a way. (laughs) Kids are pretty resourceful and creative and cunning when they want to experience something. So I don't know if it's necessarily about being better gatekeepers or preventing. Although I think at a certain age, playing a song like WAP, I mean, I don't know if I had, you know, like a seven-year-old daughter, if it'd be like, yeah, go ahead and listen to it. But I think that if we're going back to how music affects the human body, I think it's pretty safe to say that if you listen to a Coldplay song or a classical song or a Ray LaMontagne song or a Motown song, the energy and the feeling in your body is going to be vastly different than a hardcore rap song like old school NWA song or a cannibal corpse like ultra heavy death metal. I mean, for me, the feeling in my body, and this isn't about right or wrong, good or bad. I mean, there's days where I want to listen to metal and I want to listen to hardcore rap. There are days when I want to listen to classical. My musical tastes are extremely diverse and wide ranging, right? But I think ultimately, if I were to say, listen to hardcore death metal all day long or hardcore like gangster rap all day long, I think that's going to have an effect on my body and my state of being. For me, I like to listen to those things in moderation because I know in terms of my mental health, my physical health, you can feel the vibration is different. You feel like, say, a guitar or a trap beat that is like tuned down to like a drop D or drop C. I'm getting musical geekery here. You know, that's a very like, do, 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 do. It's a very dense, heavy, lower frequency that's being bombarded in your body versus something like a violin or a classical or something that's in a major scale. I'm a geek about how music affects our brains and our bodies. I actually sometimes think that I want to get into sound healing. I'm very interested with sound healing and how 
these frequencies affect the body. But my point is, is that I try to limit the heavier music. I like it from time to time, but I don't want to listen to it all day long because it affects my health. It affects my mental state for sure. And speaking of health, Whitney, I think what we put into our bodies, be it the frequencies we listen to, the music we're listening to, the movies, the TV, the media, we actually talked a lot about this on a previous episode in terms of are we what we eat mentally? That's an episode that came out a couple of weeks ago. And if you haven't listened to that episode, dear listener, it is a deeper examination into not just the food we eat, but the impressions we take in. And so I'm not feeling all that well, I try and examine like, what is it that's not making me feel well, if I can determine that? And is there anything that I can do to abate that to feel better, right? I mean, I think it's a natural thing. I don't feel that good. Okay, is there anything I can take? Is there any adjustments I can make? And one of the biggest things that I've been noticing with, uh, I guess, over the course of definitely this quarantine period is a lot more of the comfort foods that I've been eating just to kind of make a shift into a different aspect of health and what we're taking into our beings. We talked about this. I've been eating a lot more bread, pastries, ice cream, things like that. I don't feel unhealthy, but I've definitely been indulging a lot more. And for me, I don't know if this is something you've been going through with in terms of not only the comfort food, but more late night eating. Sometimes my girlfriend, Laura, will come over and uh, we've both had long days working and creating and doing the things we do. And I've noticed that when I eat later at night, say if I have dinner past 9 p.m., I sometimes feel like maybe things aren't digesting all that great, you know, like there's a little bit of indigestion. And one of the things that I've been really, really loving is from our sponsor, BioOptimizers. They had sent us a care package of these amazing enzymes and also their HCL products. So HCL is something that I started taking recently, especially when I've been eating a little bit too late at night. HCL stands for hydrochloric acid and, and BioOptimizers has this amazing product called HCL Breakthrough. And basically it's an all natural source of hydrochloric acid, which helps to increase stomach acid and support digestion and detoxification. It also includes five different types of plant-based enzymes. And this HCL product is 100% plant-based. It is completely non-irritating and it's great for sensitive tummies. And one of the big things for me, Wit, is I've noticed that when I do that late night, maybe comfort food eating, having a heavier meal and some ice cream before bed, is that I get a little bit of acid reflux and I feel like my tummy is just a little bit unsettled. So I've been taking this HCL product and the other enzyme products from Bio optimizers and feeling like it's really been great in terms of giving me a little bit of that edge to help the food digest. So I'm curious for you, Wit, you know, have you had any experience with like late night eating or any kind of digestive upset? And how have you been feeling like these products have been helping you? I'm actually tying into this episode, always interested in supplements that support the brain and cognitive performance. And they do have a line, they have like a package that you can get of products specifically for that, that include like vitamin and mineral drops. They have a product that can help boost your energy. They have one that's specifically for brain health. And that one's called Cogni Biotics. Now, full disclosure, we need to double check to see if that's 100% vegan. They use veggie capsules in most, if not all of their products. But some of them are not fully clear about being 100% vegan. And for any of our vegan listeners, we want to be really sensitive about that. So we'll be updating our show notes with that information and keeping you posted on everything that we learn to make sure that we know that some of their products that we take are vegan. I just haven't started taking the Cogni Biotics. I'm really curious about them because they actually are for your mind and your mood and their probiotics. So tying into what you were talking about, Jason, like probiotics have made a 
huge difference for me. They have really improved my digestion. So taking them regularly makes a big difference. But they can also help with your mood and sometimes even reducing stress and anxiety because it plays a role hormonally. And in this formulation that BioOptimizers has is designed for all of that. It's got vitamins in it and all of these things that are formulated to help you perform your best mentally and feel good with your mood, which I think is crucial. It's a huge issue right now during COVID. I think a lot of us have been having struggles with our fluctuating mood. But to be honest, (laughs) I think that's kind of normal for me. So anything that I can take to help with making me feel my best every day, like even if it's listening to music, but I like to take supplements just to see if they'll support me in feeling my best and thinking well too, like this cognitive performance thing. Our brain really responds to whatever we're putting in our bodies, making sure that we're hydrated. Actually, I think one of the benefits of taking supplements is that you generally will take them with a glass of water. So sometimes that's my cue like, oh, yeah, I need to drink more water today. And I'll have like eight ounces when I take something, usually take um, something like this on an empty stomach, like the Cogni Biotics specifically. You need to take on an empty stomach. Some of them you take with a meal or in between meals. So you always want to read the package. And I've actually gone as far as like kind of putting an extra label on some of my supplements that write out like when to take them and I'll line them up in order. And that way I don't get distracted because sometimes supplements can be overwhelming and they can build up in our cabinets and we can just forget to take them. And it's just simply that act of, of reducing the obstacle. So if I know like when to take something, what to take it with, and it's like in clear sight with like a labeling system, or you can use like and get those little pill containers where you can organize them out and you can like put out how many you're supposed to take each day and some of them have like the times listed on them. Those can actually be really helpful whether you're traveling or at home. So I'm just always trying to create better systems for myself and that's why I like products like the ones that bio-optimizers make because they're literally designed to help you optimize your whole daily routine and feel your best. Yeah, my big thing too, Wit, is having dairy allergies and gut issues pretty much my whole life. I think we talked about this in a previous episode where somatically I, my entire life, ever since I was a kid, have a tendency to carry stress in my gut and have a lot of digestive issues. And I just really love these products because first of all, they work and you and I consume probably thousands of products every year between supplements, body care, food, nutraceuticals, and not all of them work. My body's sensitive enough that when I start taking something, I tend to either feel or not feel the effects pretty quickly. The things that I really love about their formulations, you're talking specifically about this Cognibiotics, is that they're infused with gut biome enhancing strains of probiotics, right? Which is, we know that now through research, there's something called the enteric nervous system, the ENS, which is our second brain that most Most of our serotonin up to 90% or higher is actually manufactured in the gut. So that gut brain connection and that connection between our central nervous system and our enteric nervous system in our gut is something that science is learning more and more about all the time. But you look at strains like lactobacillus casei, uh, bifidobacterium, like animalis and brevet, these are things that not only enhance, you know, cognitive performance, they've actually done some really cool brain scans, MRI brain scans to see what these bacteria can do to the gut brain connection. And it's absolutely fascinating. We will link to all of that if you, dear listener, want to dive down the research rabbit hole a little bit more and the scientific backing behind these great products from BioOptimizers. We will put all those links in the show notes at wellevator.com. Again, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. And if you're interested in getting their HCL 
products, their Cognobiotics. We're going to be mentioning a lot of their wonderful products that Whitney and I are taking right now. You can actually use our coupon code. It's Wellevator10, again, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R in the numeral one zero, and you will save 10% on your order. But we're just raving about these because for me, again, personally, with all the gut issues I've had over my life, anything that I can do to make myself feel better and knowing that when I soothe my gut, when I optimize my digestion, I know that my mental health is going to benefit. At this point, it's kind of a non-negotiable for me. Understandable. I feel the same way. And I'm curious, actually, if music has an impact on our digestive system. I wonder if there's got to be some studies that have been done on that. (laughs) And going back to that article that I was reading about the science of music and productivity, one actually interesting thing that is fascinating for a couple of different reasons is a study found a decrease in performance when people listen to familiar vocal music. If you're listening to music that you know the lyrics to, that can be very distracting. So it's not great for your productivity because you'll find yourself like singing along or you'll be like listening and observing it. I've certainly found that to be true. Recently, I have to be very selective. I tend to want to listen to music that is instrumental for that reason or really peaceful because that puts me in a good mood. But I do find that in certain times, like outside of productivity, I really prefer listening to familiar music because I like singing along and that puts me in a good mood mood. And I guess like when it comes back around to food and digestion, I wonder about that because it reminds me a little bit how I really enjoy watching entertainment when I'm eating. It's so, it's easy to think like that we're alone in these things. Like, gosh, I must be the only one that does these things. And recently I saw maybe on like TikTok a video about somebody saying like, oh, isn't it so frustrating when you sit down to have a meal and you can't find something to watch and it almost makes it harder to eat? I don't think you have that experience, Jason, because I feel like you probably sit down at the table and don't distract yourself when you eat. But I'll be honest, like I find so much pleasure in watching TV show or a movie when I'm eating a meal, especially dinner when I'm winding down and working less. And it's become like, I actually think um, also we did this a lot when I was growing up we would often like watch have the news on in the background like I guess that's the time my parents would watch the news I don't know if if it often played while we were eating or maybe like right before but I have like an association with the news and so that brings me back to music like I'm curious do you ever play music when you're eating or are there just like certain times like another example is um, my mom would like to play classical music or some like nice music when we are eating family meals together especially over the past like 10 years or or so during the holidays, she would always like have like Christmas music on if it was Christmas time and we were having like a Christmas dinner or if it's Thanksgiving, she would always like pick a radio station that had like holiday music playing. And if it wasn't a holiday like that, I feel like they would either have classical music on when we were eating. Like my mom liked to set the tone of our family meals around music. So I'm interested on on what your experience has been with that and if you're ever that intentional. Yeah, for sure. I think it's something that came from my experience with making dinner with my grandma and my mom, which were really in terms of my family, my culinary inspirations. You know, even as a little kid, I wanted to be in the kitchen helping out my grandma, helping out my mom, chopping, adding spices to the soup and, and whatnot. And I just remember there was always some component of music apart from the holidays. It was just a thing that when you were cooking and making food, there was some music going on. And even now when I go visit my mom, which I'm hoping to do in the fall, 
we put on like it's so funny you brought up cuba we have like some favorite songs we put on cuban music or we put on some middle eastern music like the oud we'll put on david bowie we'll put on t-rex I'll put on Motown. There's just music that gets you in a specific mood. And for me, I strongly believe that the state of being you are in when you are preparing food, I believe that energy goes into the food. I do. And as an example, my grandmother Rose, she wasn't necessarily using like the healthiest ingredients all of the time, but it was her joyfulness and her love that she infused in that food that you could feel it. There was no denying that you could feel it. And I often feel the same way, Whitney, whenever I make a meal, I don't want to make a meal for myself or other people if I'm angry or frustrated or exhausted or irritated. Because I know, and that's my belief system, that the energy I'm emitting from my body is going to go into that food and then people are going to consume it. So I do play music when I'm making food. I love to throw on some Nat King Cole, some Sam Cooke, some old school Motown, some Frank Sinatra, stuff that just, I don't know, it puts you in just like a really fun, loving, open hearted space. And that's the space I want to be in when I'm making food for sure. And how about when you were working in like restaurants or you were doing private chef work? Was that part of it as well? With private chefing, it depended on the client. Some clients, I'd be in their home making food and they would be doing their own thing. And I didn't really have the option of playing music unless it was through headphones, you know, through my iPhone or whatnot. But other clients, like when I was working with Woody on the few movies we did, and I was on his tour bus, which was amazing and totally eco and hemp and solar panels. And he's got like one of the dopest tour buses ever. I'd be in there making food while he'd be on set and making him breakfast, making him lunch, making him smoothies or superfood shots. And I'd be playing whatever I wanted. David Gray, Ray LaMontagne, Red Hot Chili Peppers. Woody has really good musical taste. So whatever I'd be playing, Woody would be like, that's really great. And we talk about music all the time. And so as an aside, Woody has really dope taste in music. And for me, in terms of commercial kitchens, when I graduated culinary school and I was in and out of kitchens for like the first two to three years out of culinary school, it was a little bit tough, right? Because most of the kitchens I worked in, the staff wanted to play like metal and punk. And that's cool for a while, right? I love punk music. I love metal, as I alluded to earlier in this episode. But when you're in the kitchen for, you know, six, eight, nine, ten hours a day, and it's, you know, constantly like, you know, that stuff, there's a certain point where you're like, I'm kind of exhausted. But since I wasn't the head chef, right, you're kind of you don't really have the authority to usurp the head chef and be like, could you turn that shit off? Like, you just got to go with what's being played. So if it was me, though, like stuff that puts me in a joyful mood, I don't know, that just it translates into the music. So again, I'm very, very mindful with curating my playlists when I'm in the kitchen making food for other people. Very, very careful of that curation. I love that. And what about watching TV or movies? Like, I feel like you and I have done that together, but I don't know if you do that on your own or you just do that depending on who you're with. I kind of have a habit that I would like to break, Whitney, to be honest with you, which is that I know that in certain cases, I'm not as present to the food as I could be. So I notice that in particular, not so much lunch or dinner, but breakfast when I'm waking up in the morning, I almost want to have a little bit of more me time before I jump into the work of the day, whether it's you and I working, growing this podcast or some of the other projects I've got going on. But I'll watch basketball highlights from the night before. I'll catch up on DMs. I'll watch like car videos. Like it's not even a guilty pleasure, but like I think my my three things that when I'm wanting to just kind of indulge are either stand up comedy, basketball, or like 
car videos. And I noticed that I have a habit I would like to get away from, which is especially breakfast time. I'll be eating breakfast and I'll be watching stand up again, basketball car videos. And the next thing you know, I'm done with breakfast and I don't even remember even enjoying it. And that's not how I want to live my life. I want to be more present with my meals. So I'm outing myself a little bit and say that's one habit I would like to get out of is because at the end of the meal, Whitney, I realize I haven't even fully enjoyed it. And I don't even remember like how good it tasted. I'll remember maybe the first few bites, but inevitably it happens all the time. I'll look down at the bowl or the plate and be like, oh shit, I'm done with my meal and don't even remember doing it. For sure. And I can get in that same place. It's interesting just reflecting on like, what is the draw to, and I think back to maybe childhood, as I said, I don't remember if we watched TV while we were eating. We don't do that anymore. Like my mom's, they like to make meals more sacred and connected. And I think we actually probably started doing this in my teens. Like we would eat in the dining room, you know, like we had a literal dining room with a table or now like that we have a dining room. We also have like a kitchen table that we eat at as a family. And there isn't a table like there used to be in the family room where we had the television. And I do like that experience. Like that would be where my parents parents would like ask me how my day was and I would either really want to tell them or hate being asked that question. <laughs> but it's very sweet like thinking about meals and how they can feel really connected and the love that goes into preparing a meal too. It's kind of like when you eat with somebody that you care about, a friend, family member, a loved one, and they're checking their phone and you feel so disconnected from them. That I feel like I have to fight that temptation too. And I feel like meals, maybe part of the draw of watching something is you're like, if you're with somebody, maybe that's your only chance to watch something together. Maybe that helps you feel more relaxed. Maybe you just like want to quote, turn off your brain for a little bit, or maybe since you're chewing your food, you're not going to talk much anyway. I guess like there isn't necessarily a right or wrong about it, but it is interesting from your point, Jason, is like, how can we be more present for our meals? That also greatly impacts our digestion because if we're not paying attention, we can eat so fast that we're just like swallowing the food, like forget our taste buds. It's also not great for us. And if we don't slow down and feel amazing throughout every bite and really be grateful for it too thinking about who made the food or where it came from and what went into that. We talked about this in another episode, how we often take for granted how our food is made because our food systems aren't always that transparent about it. Or we just don't think to care about those things like who grew our food and who harvested it and who produced it. We talked about in an episode recently about like mold growing on food in the bread episode and how like that idea of you pay with your purse or you pay with your person, like sometimes cheap food is just cheaply made and and workers aren't treated well and your food isn't stored well and it could actually greatly affect your body. But then there's also that last part of acknowledging the process in which it came to you. And some people love to say a prayer. I think, do you still do that regularly, Jason? I felt like you did that a lot when I was first getting to know you, but now I don't even notice if you do it or not. Um, I do it, but I like to do it silently. I'm not a fan of like, there's nothing wrong with this because I used to do it, but like holding my hands over the food and like saying a prayer out loud, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. I just prefer to take a moment to be still and like feel the gratitude and the excitement and the joyfulness and the thankfulness in my body. And I don't feel the need to outwardly display it. Like I feel like the internal sensation and experience in my body is the same. And that's just me. I prefer to just do it silently now. Yeah. It's like saying grace or saying a prayer or something. I actually, whenever somebody does that around me, I feel very grateful for it because I 
rarely ever think to do it. Going back to my family, that's not something we do super frequently. But during the holidays, my mom always does this where she has everybody at the table hold hands, (laughs) which can be really awkward if there's like guests there. But I think people appreciate it. They just might not be used to it. So we all hold hands and maybe say something together. But She loves having people go around in a circle and talk about like what they're grateful for or something like that right before we start eating. And then she also will often have us... so funny bringing this up. She'll have us squeeze our hands down the line. And it's interesting, like now during COVID, maybe this stuff won't happen as frequently. Although I guess if you're in somebody's home, you might as well hold hands given all the exposure that you have. And hopefully one day we won't have to worry so much about this. But anyways, we'd all hold hands and one person would squeeze another person's hand and then they would pass it on down. Did we ever do that when you were visiting my family, Jason? Yeah, it sounds familiar to me. It's very sweet. I think those rituals around food really make a huge difference. And that kind of is like a huge element of music and audio in general. I think lastly on this subject matter, before we wrap up, is the impact of audio when you're sleeping. And I'm a huge fan of white noise. I feel most comfortable and I have easier time falling asleep and staying asleep when I have white noise on. And I think I mentioned it in a previous episode. We've done a couple episodes about sleep, but just to shout them out again, there's this product called Electrofan that is this compact white noise machine. And it's so great. Like it blocks out so much noise and it has been a game changer for me. Previous to that, I would use my phone for white noise, but like the speaker was never quite loud enough. And I've also used sleep phones, which I really like. They're headphones designed to put over your ears so you can listen to music or whatever audio of your choice while you're sleeping. So I use those two from time to time, depending on how loud a noise is or how convenient that is. Have you tried those yet, Jason? By the way, I gave you a pair to try out. I still need to try them, love. Yeah. I mean, I was kind of waiting, honestly, for (laughs) my neighbors to kind of play their somewhat irritating music, which hasn't happened yet because I wanted to test it against that. But I mean, I could test it without that. I just feel like part of me wants to wait and see if they're effective against that sonic barrage from next door. You almost have your own version of sonic warfare, sonic attacks happening. And it's kind of funny. I mean, outside right now, there's construction happening, and that can be really tough for me sometimes, even if we're not recording the podcast. But just like waking up to those sounds can be really frustrating or hear like a dog barking or maybe your own animals make noise because they hear noise outside. That's part of the reason I use a white noise machine, not just for me, but for my dog, Evie. And when I was growing up, I used to really love nature sounds. I don't like it as much. I got into rain sometimes, but like I'm so particular. I like a constant, consistent sound, which is why white noise tends to work better. If the sound changes as many rain tracks tend to do like you'll hear like a thunderstorm in the background as soon as like I'll hear a, the thunder it takes me out of like that focus state that I get into to fall asleep if that makes sense or if like the rain sounds the patterns kind of change or shift that I find really distracting and not very comforting but some people are fine with it same thing with waves like It sounds like it'd be nice, but like the sounds of the waves getting closer and farther away, that can be really distracting. Or if like you hear like seagulls (laughs) in the background every once in a while, I'm like, oh, this is so annoying. And I get very sensitive to that change and it's not comforting to me. I'm curious what it'll be like when I'm traveling cross country and 
like nature sounds in certain areas or like when we're camping, like what various sounds might impact my sleeping. That's why I'm actually going to bring my electro fan with me because it's USB powered and you can plug it into like a USB portable charger or I think I'll be able to plug it into my car that I'll be sleeping in. And I'll also be bringing my sleep phones, which I can charge in advance. There's a couple different pairs of sleep phones, by the way, if you're interested in them. I gave Jason a pair that are wired and those don't require any battery. You just plug them into your phone or any speaker and they work really well. But then you have a cord. If you don't want a cord, you can use their Bluetooth, which does need to be charged, but the charge lasts a long time and they're completely cordless. So that's handy if you move around in your sleep, as long as you don't mind having Bluetooth on your head. I use the Bluetooth pair for the convenience factor. So I'll be bringing those on my trip too, just to be prepped. You're a big fan of using earplugs, Jason, right? Yeah, I love the silicone earplug rather than a foam earplug. I find that for me, in terms of blocking out the sound, the silicone ones, they're moldable. They just, they work better than the foam ones for me. The other thing too that I love, you talked about nature sounds. I really love the app. It's a free app called Rain Rain and they have like stream sounds, ocean sounds, rain sounds. It's it's kind of, I think, all water-based sounds. And I, I actually have figured out a combination of like 60% rain and 40% forest stream. And that like works really well for me because you talk about the consistency. It's just consistent throughout. There's not a lot of deviation in terms of there's no seagulls or like ah, sounds or anything like that. So I really like rain, rain. And the other thing I wanted to say to Whitney, you know, what could be interesting on your road trip is to see if the ambient noise from the virtual digital fireplace on your Tesla, the screen, if that crackling noise might be good for you in terms of ambient noise. Oh, man. Actually, as soon as you said that, I cringed. I'm like, oh, God, that sounds horrible. So for context for anyone listening, I have a Tesla Model 3 and I'm so excited because it has camp mode and I want to try it out so bad. My fingers crossed that it works well because there's actually not that much information about camp mode that's been helpful for my research. So I hope to add to that. I'll be documenting my experience. We'll talk about it in the podcast when it's over. But I think it's going to work well. The one downside, though, is, yeah, there is... um, Like it's cool in theory, but I don't know how long it's on the screen for. But when you go into camp mode, the Tesla switches over to this image or it's like a video basically of a campsite with like a campfire. And it sounds really cool in theory, but I can't remember if there's audio that plays for that. There is audio that plays during romance mode on the Tesla, which is a fireplace. And it also turns on the heat. So it's supposed to mimic the feeling of sitting in front of an actual fireplace, which is really like gimmicky, but fun to use every once in a while. I've never used it for an extended period of time. It also plays like a random romantic song. (laughs) It's very amusing. I love the way that Elon Musk's mind works. And then there's also dog mode too, just since we're talking about all the different modes that the Tesla has. It's like one of the greatest things ever, but has nothing to do with what we're talking about here. So I'll keep you posted, Jason. I hope that I do not have to listen to crackling wood while I'm trying to sleep in my car. I think I'd be quite annoyed by that, but I'll figure it out and it's the least of my worries right now. 
Well, with that being said, since we have given a lot of love to our wonderful sponsor, BioOptimizers, and continue to share our love for them, shall we jump straight into the, do you have any new frequently asked queries? Any, any ones you can pluck out of the ethers? I do. I do. I'm a little prepared today. Sometimes I'm more prepared than others. So for the listener, we do this at the end of most of our episodes these days. We've been doing it for a few months, I think, by now. So maybe you're already used to it if you've listened to our show before. But these are queries that people type into Google that lead them to our website. And I'm always fascinated by them. And one of them actually ties into this. The query was pursuing music. And Jason, I'm curious where you stand on pursuing music in your life. And I know that you've been teaching guitar lately, which I think is really cool. I'm interested to see, like, do you still have dreams of pursuing music as, I don't know, like a hobby or perhaps a career, making money from it? Like, where do you stand with that? Well, I've had a pretty big shift around that in terms of why I want to play music. And when I was in a lot of bands in my 20s and 30s, and I was in a lot of bands in Detroit, Chicago, New York, LA, the Bay Area, I've just, I, music has been a big part of my life for more than two decades now. When I was in my 20s, it was in Detroit around the time that the White Stripes were coming up, the Von Bondies. I remember playing the same clubs when nobody knew who the Black Keys were and they were driving in from Ohio to play the clubs in Detroit. I mean, I, I was making music in Detroit in that era. And there was this feeling that anyone could get signed at any moment. Seymour Stein from Sire Records would be in the crowd at a random ass dumpy club in LA checking out bands. And there was just this energy of we got to get signed. We got to be rock stars. And it didn't happen for me. And I don't have any illusions of, quote, being a rock star or making a full-time career out of music. I feel like I've let go of that vision for my life. But what I've realize is that music is the reason I wanted to do it in the first place is there are certain songs and album and artists, albums and artists that have been through me through the most joyful times in my life and the most heart-wrenching, heartbreaking, saddest times. And music has a power. There's a deep moving power to music. And to me, that's the biggest reason why I want to keep singing and playing music and teaching now. That that came out of nowhere. That was about a month ago, an acquaintance who's now becoming a friend of mine was like, will you teach me guitar lessons? I'll pay you. And I was like, okay. And it's been really wonderful to realize how much I actually know on that instrument and how much I can pass that gift of music forward to someone who's wanted to learn it their whole lives. So my relationship to, quote, pursuing music, Whitney, it's not really what it was 20 years ago. It's now that I want to create organically I want to finish these songs that want to be finished and release a new album of music. And in fact, last year, the spring of 2019, I uploaded, I think, almost 70 tracks to my SoundCloud account. And uh, for you, dear listener, if you want to check out that music, I'd be tremendously grateful. We'll link to that in the show notes. It's just soundcloud.com slash Jason Robel. And I've got, I think, about 70 songs that I've recorded over the last 20 years in different bands and my own solo projects. And the long answer, Whitney, is I am not pursuing it to be a rock star. I'm not pursuing it to get a record deal. I'm not going after that sense of satisfaction with it. I'm just, I'm creating and writing and singing and passing it along because I think that music is a savior. Music is something I cherish. And I just, I'm not really quite sure what form it's going to take moving forward, but it is what it is. I think that's a great answer. Another query that I feel like kind of ties into what we're talking about here, very not as much about the music side of things, but when you were talking about being a chef, there was a query where somebody asked, how much money do chefs make per hour? Well, it really depends on the context. I mean, one of the reasons that I didn't stay in the restaurant world is because out of culinary school, it was like, okay, we're going to pay you $8 an hour, which when you live in a place like 
LA or New York as a single person, you can't survive on that wage. It's not possible that I know of, at least in my experience. And so I left the restaurant world because being a line cook or being even an assistant chef in certain contexts, I think the most I ever made in the restaurant world was... 12 or 15 dollars an hour and again you know in new york city you want to live in brooklyn or manhattan unless you're living with a bunch of other people it's really tough to get by on 12 or 15 dollars an hour so in terms of the restaurant world unless you're getting bumped up to a salaried position like an executive chef you're not making a whole lot of money boy in terms of like say personal chefing right now um it depends some people do hourly can be anywhere between kind of starting at $50 an hour and on up which is a really good living wage to be a personal chef but if you're working with a high profile person who is a celebrity or fine whatever a person who's got a lot of money <laughs> i want to categorize what industry they're in if you are a full-time personal chef sometimes you can get a salaried position of 150,000 a year 200,000 a year full benefits you travel the world with them so as a chef the real money is doing personal chefing, starting your own product line, or becoming a celebrity chef and having multiple income streams where you have books and TV shows and courses and signing tours and blah, blah, blah. So yeah, I mean, there's a lot more intricate details I could get into, but the range between say a line cook at a restaurant and being an executive chef or a personal chef or a celebrity chef, it's a massive income gap. Massive. It's pretty fascinating. And I love hearing about these things. I think it's important to talk about more openly, like because some people want to pursue something for money. Some people want it to be for passion and then money afterwards. Some people want a perfect balance between the two of them. And money is always incredibly fascinating when it comes to doing what you love. And I love that you are so open and honest about your experiences, Jason. All right. One last one for us. I thought this was kind of funny. I'm I'm curious, Jason, what is the very first thing that comes to mind when I say this query, which is awful food? I think about like cafeteria food is what I think about immediately. And just we were talking about school in this episode a lot and our educational experience. I just remember now the food in school cafeterias being horrifyingly bad. Horrifying. I mean, I think the only thing that I actually ever enjoyed was like the tater tots. The pizza was greasy and cheese was like not actually cheese. And you could kind of like use the cheese to like tie someone up if you were going to kidnap them. It was like the eternally stretchy cheese that you could never break. I mean, the government food and the subsidized food in school cafeterias for the most part is horrifyingly bad. I mean, that's an aspect of the food system that I have a passion to somehow change. I haven't quite figured it out yet, but by and large, in most major city public school systems, the food is horrible. So when you say awful food, my immediate thing is cafeteria food, really bad. What about you when you think of awful food? (laughs) Nothing is coming immediately to mind. And that's like, I know it's in there, but maybe I just blocked it out. Like maybe I just never wanted to think about something being bad. I will say that I don't have that association with cafeteria food because my school system in Massachusetts had an extraordinary food system. Actually, for sure, when I was in high school, remember when I said the two schools were across the street? I wonder if he's still there. I think he might be. I hope he is. But there was this man named Chef Paul who came into my school system 
I don't know if it was at the beginning of middle school or when exactly. It might have even been before I literally crossed the street from one school to another. But he came in and started doing gourmet meals at our school. And it transformed our experience because he was making fresh, delicious food. And I don't know much about the politics. Like, I don't know how much it cost. I don't recall that I would opt to buy food at school very often. I think to save money... I would usually bring my own. That I'm very fuzzy on. I don't remember the detail. I'm pretty sure I didn't eat it very often, but it definitely made this massive impact on us because we had this loving, caring chef who's literally putting love into the food and was very passionate about making food better. And the more I think about it, I feel like probably within the last year or two, I heard that he was still there and he was like working on some cool project. Like he would get involved with the farmer's market. They started having a farmer's market at the school after I left, but I think it's still there. Maybe not during COVID, but I know for many years, there was a farmer's market there. He might have been involved with that. Like he was so passionate. Jason, if you ever get the chance to meet this man, like you would just probably have so much in common because he did so many incredible things for us. Previous to Chef Paul, we had pretty standard food, but I don't remember it being that offensive, probably because I think I would usually have a packed lunch. When you talk about tater tots, though, like those bring back good memories. <laughs> I think if I really try to go deep in my mind, you're right. Like the food was pretty shitty before Chef Paul came to our school. And I mean, what an incredible gift to give students like coming back to teachers like these people make such a huge impact on your life. And these school systems can make or break your relationship with food as well. I've seen movies. I don't know if it was like Super Size Me or like one of those type of documentaries that went around and like exposed the food systems and schools and how like they would count ketchup as a vegetable and stuff like that. Like it's pretty nuts how the government controls like the food that we eat as children. And like some kids also depend on eating lunch. And during COVID, a lot of people were struggling because their kids weren't going to school and their whole food schedule was messed up as a result of it. And so some schools started like offering lunch programs during COVID where you could go like pick up food. And so, yeah, maybe it isn't the greatest food, but if that's literally what you need to survive, it doesn't matter if it tastes awful. <laughs> it's, it's kind of a privilege to say like food tastes awful in a way. And maybe that's why I don't have much of a memory. I feel like if I really had to think about it, it'd be like something I was forced to eat when I was growing up as a kid. Because I feel like once I became an adult, I had so much choice over what I was eating. And it's rare that I would come across awful food. Maybe I like learned to eyeball it or like read the description well enough. Of course, there's plenty of mediocre foods that we've had. But in terms of awful, that's a tough one for me, Jason. You know what comes up, though? Another flash, Whitney. Ready for this? Lunchables. Which were great. Can we be honest? As kids? No? Mm. Okay, it's all relative because for me, my parents would never buy me Lunchables. So they were like forbidden. Not forbidden like you can't have them, but like they were pretty pricey because it was like crackers and like small pieces of meat and cheese that you could have bought a ton of on its own. But like as a kid, before I went vegetarian, the ham Lunchables, I still remember what those taste like. I thought they were incredible because <laughs> they were like junk food I never got to enjoy. 
Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. The forbidden element of it, again, go back to what I said earlier, that if we feel restricted or denied things, we do feel a deeper level of compulsion and desire and excitement for those things. So I guess for me, I probably ate way too many damn Lunchables. And for you, it was like this exotic special treat. So... You know what that reminds me? I saw a friend of mine yesterday and she took her two kids on a road trip and it was their very first time having fast food and they didn't like it. And she was like, are you serious? Like literally, she told me her son picked out the fruit, like I guess whatever fast food chain they went to had like a kid's meal with fruit. He picked out the fruit and handed her back the rest of it and didn't want it. And I was like, wow. I mean, she also said he might have just been stuffed on other snacks and things that he was eating previously. But like, it is really interesting how sometimes we want things because we don't ever get them. And sometimes since we don't have them, we don't even want them. And food is always so fascinating in that sense. I feel like that's a whole nother podcast topic about the nature of desire and attraction and wanting things that that actually I feel like could parlay into a whole nother subject, which we'll probably spin that into a future episode, dear listener. But for now, we are wrapping this one. This episode of this might get uncomfortable. Shout out to our amazing sponsor, Bio Optimizers. We are absolutely loving their products. And again, if you're interested in checking out their entire product lineup, you can go to their website, which we will link to in the show notes. And again, you can use our special coupon code, which is Wellevator10, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R- one zero Wellevator 10 to save 10% on your order. And for all of the articles, the links, the books, everything that we mentioned for you to go a little bit deeper down the rabbit hole, you can access all of those at our show notes. You go to Wellevator.com and click on the podcast section. It will take you right to the show notes for this episode and all of the previous episodes. We are also on all of the social media platforms all of them, every single one. And we're going to be putting out more content there. Whitney's also going to be putting out more content on her road trip. So you can go to Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Pinterest, TikTok, Twitter. It's at Wellevator. Again, for the 50 millionth time in this episode, (laughs) W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. And until next time, dear listener, thanks for getting uncomfortable with us. And we will catch you for another episode in just a few days. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.